Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite Lene Erickson. Lene is the senior vice president for the social policy and politics program at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Welcome back, Lene. It's great to see you. Happy December. Also returning to the roundup is highly sought after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend, Susan Del Percio. Susan, it's great to see you. Welcome back. Oh, it's so great to be with you, and I'm excited to be on with Lene for the first time. On this week's roundup, Chris Cuomo's suspension from CNN and the relationship between the cable news industry and politicians, the threat of the Omicron variant and what we can learn from the earlier waves of COVID, Donald Trump and his allies working to place supporters in key election posts across the country. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we're going to talk about the fate of the Build Back Better bill and the temporarily most powerful person in Washington, D.C., whose name you definitely do not know. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and join our community. Let's dig in. On Tuesday, CNN indefinitely suspended Chris Cuomo after new details emerged about how the news anchor advised his brother, Andrew Cuomo, the former governor of New York, as he faced sexual harassment accusations. Now, Chris Cuomo previously apologized for advising senior aides to his brother, which is a breach of traditional barriers between journalists and lawmakers. But on Monday, the New York Attorney General's office released thousands of pages of evidence from their investigation into Andrew Cuomo. And in a statement released on Tuesday, CNN said that these documents point to a greater level of involvement in his brother's efforts than we previously knew. In emails to his brother's staff, Chris Cuomo repeatedly offered advice and made efforts to track down the status of articles being written about the sexual harassment allegations, including at Politico and The New Yorker. And even before these latest revelations, CNN anchor Jake Tapper told Kara Swisher that Chris Cuomo's actions had, quote, put us in a bad spot back in May. And he added, I cannot imagine a world in which anybody in journalism thinks that that was appropriate. And on Wednesday, Chris Cuomo addressed his CNN suspension on his Sirius XM radio show saying it hurts to even say it and said the suspension was embarrassing, but that he understands it. So, Susan, I'm so glad you're here today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have, I have, um, you know, at first when we were discussing our topics for this week, I didn't have really strong opinions about this at all until we started trying to untangle it a little bit and it led to some bigger questions. But I want you to start here with your reaction because you are very familiar with Cuomo World. Um, What were you thinking when you saw the level of involvement uh, that was included in the AG's evidence? Sure. Let me first disclose that I served as senior advisor to Governor Cuomo 2014 to 2015 At that time, there was something called the Moreland investigation into Governor Cuomo's actions. And I can tell you back then, it was not unusual to see in a a short period of time, I'd say in a two or three week period of time when the governor was under fire, it was not unusual to see Chris Cuomo walking around talking to people, mostly his brother, but it, it wasn't surprising, nor did I find it inappropriate, by the way. It's, it was his brother. He was coming in. There was not this kind of communication with the staff that we have seen now um, in this finding by the attorney general. When I first heard the news about Chris Cuomo advising and how to what extent, I was shocked that it went that far. When I read part of the testimony that was released, I was floored because we cannot have at this particular time when our democracy is so threatened, widely recognized important journalists keeping things from the public or trying to undermine the news stories that are out there. And more importantly, 
his relationship with journalists. It wasn't just those two news outlets you you mentioned. It was also the folks at CNN. Everyone was trying to track something down on Andrew Cuomo. There's, I mean, everyone. So I think that Chris really abused those relationships and undermined the reporting that went on. And it was appropriate. Actually, I think he should have just been fired. Um, The indefinite suspension is, I think, a a long way of getting to being fired or maybe letting his contract run out because I don't know if he's still getting paid while under suspension. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that that could be the reason why they use that term and his when it compared to when his contract's up, but it really, it does at this very important time. I want to say this again, it does so distrust with the public and the media, especially at the time where everyone around the country was turning to Andrew Cuomo on COVID. And really, he was the one they were trusting. I went as far as calling him as America's governor. Mm. Um, And I think it was April of 2020. This really does hurt that standing of integrity and trust, not just in, in the media, but in government. I have a quick follow-up question for you. Does the fact that, uh, that CNN suspended him mean that he likely declined an opportunity to resign or to step down in some way? I don't think that, I I don't know the answer. Let me put it, let me just make it that way. I do not know if that's the reason why they chose the suspension. Again, I have a feeling it played more to contract or maybe more of maybe giving Chris a way to rehabilitate his his reputation and maybe come back later. I don't know the answer, though. Okay. Lene, what was your take on this? I mean, I couldn't agree more with what Susan said. And I just, you know, I I was thinking about how in my entire um, spectrum of my career in politics, every year we seem to think that trust in government and institutions and officials is at an all-time low, and then it gets worse. (laughs) And I just, like, I remember this chart that I was looking at in 2010, and we were like, oh my God, trust in institutions has never been lower. And that would look like super rosy right now compared to where we are. So I just think you have a responsibility if you are a person in power, whether that's in politics or in journalism um, or at the head of big institutions, to not contribute to that. And this is the you know absolute worst case scenario where you have someone who lots of people know. You know, I don't really like to watch cable news because it feels like work to me. But like, I know who Chris Cuomo is. My mom knows who Chris Cuomo is. Everybody knows, and it just reinforces the idea that. There's this cabal of people that are, you know, trying to manipulate us and trying to um, not tell us the truth. And um, that just continues to undermine our democracy. And in, you know, until we restore that trust in some way, we're not going to be able to move forward, whether that means in politics or just broader American society. Yeah. So this is exactly why we chose this subject for today, this topic for today, because this is where we start to sort of untangle the the mass or like the, the questions get a little bit more interesting for me because, you know, frankly, I don't watch cable news very much. And, um, you guys are killing me just I know, for the record. I know. I, know. <laughs> I only watch the super <laughs> I know. Right. But, but part of the, part of the reason is, um, well, there's lots of reasons. I just, I just don't want it on as background noise for most of the time, but, but when I do turn it on, like, let's just call me a casual observer, right? I, I'm, a, I'm a lay viewer, right? If, if, if that's the case, if I don't have any idea who the, who the different personalities are or what their roles are when I turn on the news, what I think is going to be the news, um, it's very difficult for me to know whether or not the person talking is offering me their opinion or offering me fact. I, it's very difficult for me to know that if I don't, if I don't know their names, their backgrounds, if, if CNN or MSNBC, or I don't really watch Fox news, but like if, if the channels don't make it very clear to me what I'm getting, um, I, I assume that since it's a news station, I'm getting news. And, uh, my first thought when I saw this was, okay, this is his brother. And if I were to put myself in his shoes, uh, in a, in a similar situation, if it were for example, for my sister, for example, um, I empathize, sympathize with Chris Cuomo. Totally. I can't say I wouldn't do the same thing. Um, 
Now, I probably would have disclosed that or not been part of the coverage, right? I would have recused myself from covering it, but I certainly would have rushed to my loved one's side to help them through a crisis, regardless of whether or not what they did was good or bad. Um, but more importantly, uh, this problem of knowing who to trust on cable news seems like it could be solved or at least uh, mitigated a lot by news stations making it very, very clear the type of information that you're getting. For example, uh, you know, whoever's talking, like color code the person's, th- like, this is an opinion uh, person. This is a news person, right? I, I, I can't tell the difference. And so I, I want to I want to tease that out a little bit and see what you think about what role these cable news companies have uh, to disclose um, and make it really clear to people, you know, the, the, the backgrounds and the intentions of the people who are talking to them. Well, Ron, it's not even just cable news, though. It's all news, right? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it, like, who knows when I click into an article at The Atlantic or The New Republic, whether I'm reading someone's opinion or whether I'm reading, you know, what is saying it's, you know, kind of journalism and news. And I think even worse than that online, um, at this point, you can buy an ad that looks like news. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we've gotten to the point where like a company (laughs) can just like buy an article. And when you look at the website, you can't tell whether that was written by a journalist or written by the company. Um, I know this for for a fact because we do some like digital advertising on some of our advocacy campaigns and the the amount of things you can do to hide that you've paid for that content is unreal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not just like, I don't know what's an op-ed and what's a, you know, what's a news article. Mm-hmm. It goes way beyond that at this point. Yeah. Totally. And also because a lot of people get their news from social media mm-hmm. and from other people's posts. Mm-hmm. And that even takes away more of the context in which something is airing because it's only clips or it's like, oh, read this. And you don't necessarily even know what publication it's coming right. from. I will say that two of the three news outlets, for the most part, the nine to four, nine a.m. to four o'clock hour East Coast, they do put it out mostly as news. They try and that they they tend not to have as many strategists on. Um, you don't the the anchors are less political. Uh, they don't even talk about his politics as much. It depending on what's in the news, they'll do more Washington based. But after that, it's it's all opinion. And I think it's also important to, to recognize that if you want real news, I tell this to people all the time. They're like, oh, I can't watch cable news. I said, I don't blame you. Mm-hmm. I said, watch your local news. Find out what's going on, especially for the weather. I mean, that's good. And, <laughs> and really, what, what else is happening locally? You'll get a taste of what's happening in Washington if it's it's topical. And then watch BBC America and just get a taste of everything else that's happening in the country for a broader purview. You can do that all within 30 minutes. It doesn't take a lot of time. And you can actually be caught up on what is news. Because right now, the majority of people look for information, what I call their news silos, which is where they go for validation of their own opinions. Mm -hmm. It's not to gain information or clarity. That's what Google is for at this point. Like, I can't tell you. My mom is like, she sometimes sends me things when she's just on the mood to search for it. She's like, is this real? And I'm like, well, it was in the New York Post. I think you need to look into it a little more. (laughs) Um, But but it, it turned out to be a book review or something. And I'm like, you have to really do diligence and realize that a lot of quote news is more leaning on entertainment and you have to now search out the facts in a, in a much harder way than you used to when you had the major networks and maybe three or four news public national news publications in your local newspaper where you had basically everyone was agreeing on the same facts. And then you read the op-ed page in that matter. Yeah. To your point about the brother thing, like, I get it, but let's be clear, this isn't the first time that a journalist has been related to a politician. By no means is it the first time. And one that sprung to mind for me as I was reading this was James Bennett, who um, is the brother of Michael Bennett. So Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado 
um, began to run for president in 2020. You may remember him as one of the 24 white dudes on stage during the Democratic primary. I actually was a big fan. I'm a big fan still of what his then platform was about around democracy and the security of this whole thing. So he's very, very active on issues you care about. Great senator. Um, I work with his office a lot. And his brother was the um, the ed- editor of the New York Times opinion page and um, ended up, there was some coverage of 2020, ended up resigning from that post because he, you know, realized that there was a tension there. So it's not, you know, it's, of course, it's a human thing to want to help your family out. But there's also ways that you can do it and conduct yourself that are within the bounds of journalistic ethics and just like, human ethics that I think really this this Cuomo story went well beyond that. I, yeah, I totally agree. Go ahead, Susan. Don't you think people would learn by now? I was reading a local story. <laughs> Seriously. We humans. I was, <laughs> I was reading a local a local news story about a county, a county executive or someone in Erie County who's now got arrested, charges filed for campaign um, abuse or campaign finance abuse. Like, don't you know by now you can't pay with your credit card for your home improvements? Like, and show it on the filing? Like, I, I feel like in the same case, whether it's Bennett or Cuomo, especially journalists should know better when it looks when it comes to a conflict of interest. There is nothing wrong with Chris Cuomo being there for his brother. Then he has to take a leave from reporting on the news about his brother and even being affiliated. So you make a choice. We have all made choices. Sometimes I, when I went to Lincoln Project, I was on leave from MSNBC. Mm-hmm. It was okay. That's fine. You want to make sure those lines are clear so you know what people, you know, what they're, where they're coming from. But again, why haven't they learned? And why have I, I wonder why there isn't greater outcry, public outcry against this? I think it's a p- bunch of people like us insiders that get through it. Yeah. But like maybe people just don't well, care. Well, well, I think uh, one of the problems is first of all, I think everything you've you've laid out is right, especially the the you know that it requires extra labor, extra effort in order to find out the facts if you're actually curious about something. But that also demands a level of information literacy that most people do not have. We just don't, we don't teach it in school. We just, we, we, we don't have it. Um, and, and, you know, by the way, no, no, uh, <laughs> no talk about conflicts of interest between journalism and politicians would be complete without, uh, mentioning that earlier this year, the Washington post reported on a shift in the style at CNN network president, Jeff Zucker described it as encouraging authenticity and being real. But the post noted that some viewers saw it as adding more opinion into their broadcasts, which isn't really new in cable news, but Jake Tapper's quote about how a journalist wouldn't think it was appropriate to advise an elected official, right? Uh, We shouldn't equate the two, but Sean Hannity, a cable news, yeah, a cable, a cable right opinion, there, a cable um, opinion host, right? Didn't have any problem advising Donald Trump. Hannity's show is a, an opinion show. It is, you know, without a doubt, and and they bragged about it. Yeah, like they were, totally. they were at least open about it. There wasn't like he's like, yes, I speak to the president every day, and I tell him what I think. Yeah. That's a little more open. It, right. it, like it, no one it's, thinks Fox it's is terrible. Like nobody thinks it's, <laughs> it's terrible, but at least like they're not they're 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 not making any uh you know I mean in that instance anyway, they weren't hiding anything. So the question really is should there be a different set of norms and expectations for journalists, uh slash reporters and other cable hosts who aren't journalists and uh, and, and sort of what is cable news, uh, responsible for in terms of how it, how it advertises and how it presents the, the, these people. And personally, as a viewer, I would like to see more disclosure, more trans, more, more easy to read chirons, easy to understand, you know, the frame that I should put whatever's coming at me on the TV. Um, I would, I would like to see more of that, but 
But to Susan's point, way more people get their news from social media than from cable news at this point. So sure, but then we need to hold social media accountable for having more context. Then we need to hold websites, uh, you know, to that same standard. I just don't think cable news is the the main problem here. No, it's not. (laughs) But the news that that people consume on social media often is clips of cable news, right? That's true. Yes, but you know what? I'm sorry, folks. There is personal responsibility too here. Yes. Yeah. So Absolutely. I, you know, we can we can do whatever we want and in, in whatever regulations and what's required, but it's on us, and we have to decide if we want to be at least a partially educated society when it comes to the information we take in. You know, we've all worked on campaigns, and we've all heard this. No one pays attention until after Labor Day when you know, you're coming into the home stretch. And that it goes from a, a, an idea of informing voters of your positions. And then at the end, we persuade them on our positions. This is the way it works. Well, the informing and the persuasion is now 24-7, 365 days a year. We don't have that because people are already developing and going again into those new silos or into their corners because we're so much more divided. They're getting their information and we don't even talk about positions anymore. I mean, you have a candidate and you say like, oh, yeah, so where do you stand on tax policy? It's like, (laughs) no one cares. (laughs) By the way, uh, listeners, in a 2020 poll, Pew found that 48% of respondents trusted ABC more than any other news source. So there you go. Last week, the World Health Organization designated a COVID variant named Omicron a new variant of concern. Scientists are still learning a lot about the variant, but right now it is not clear whether Omicron is more transmissible than other variants, including Delta, but the U.S. had its first confirmed case of the variant on Wednesday. And since we don't know anything yet. Uh, and none of us are scientists. I don't want to really get into the mutations and the spikes or any of that. Um, I really want to dive into the reaction to the variant by government and politicians and what we're going to need to do to improve uh, from our earlier waves of COVID. So to start, uh, the Biden administration is preparing for stricter testing requirements for all travelers entering the U.S., including returning Americans. Uh, to curb the spread of the variant. The testing would be required regardless of vaccination status, according to the Washington Post. Administration officials are also debating a proposal to require all travelers, including U.S. citizens, to self-quarantine for seven days, even if they test negative for COVID, which is far more controversial. There's a draft proposal that was written by the CDC and is being reviewed by HHS and the White House, but it doesn't include the self-quarantine measures. It could be added later if there's more support from administration officials. And a new morning consult poll shows uh, seven in 10 Americans are concerned about the Omicron variant, but the net approval rating of the administration's handling has fallen to plus two at the end of November from a plus 33 approval in March of this year. And on Monday, President Biden urged Americans to remain calm. He said the new variant is a cause for concern, not a cause for panic. Thinking back to early 2020, when we were still learning about COVID-19, Susan, you've mentioned this before on the show. Um, What do you see as some of the missteps uh, that elected officials made that we really need to correct for this time? Communication, informing the public. Um, and, and just to throw in a little bit of cable news, like people go on cable news they and, and they're medical doctors and they can only offer opinion because as we know, we don't have the science yet on this variant. We won't for some time. So that is just a personal pet peeve. Like when I hear people guessing what we're going to have to do because people don't always listen carefully and they assume that's the new policy. But coming out of the administration, I thought Biden's uh, press conference where he said there we should be concerned, but it's not time to panic, makes sense. And that was straight out. The problem was, is, and I am a fan of Dr. Fauci as far as his abilities, but I heard three different th- him say three different things about three different vi- uh, questions about the variant. And I don't think that is good. You have to have a really tight message as to what people want. Biden will be offering his plan to the public. 
one of the things I think is critical and we never highlight enough and either does the CDC is testing, 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 testing. Right now, it looks like private insurance will pay for at-home testing. That is great. We need to do more of it. People need to understand that testing is important because in 2020, we had the former guy not wanting testing because he was afraid it would make the numbers go up. Well, same amount of people are sick, whether they test positive or (laughs) if you get a test or not. If you got it, you got it. It doesn't change. But Biden has to be not afraid of seeing more cases and also talking about the vaccination as the best way to fight it, which is what they've been doing. But what it means, you know, if you're vaccinated and if I'm, I'm fully vaccinated, I'm boosted, I may get COVID. I may be a breakthrough case. I probably won't get very sick. The unvaccinated get hospitalized. And what we need to know as a society, when those hospitalizations happen, it means that if I have a heart attack, I can't get into a hospital. I'm not being cared for because of the unvaccinated. So they say, oh, my body, my choice. Besides such a ridiculous thing for them to say, they are, there's no sense of helping the other person, if you will, helping your neighbor, like your neighbor breaks their leg. They may not be able to get it set properly because of your COVID hospital is overrun. And that's the real threat of COVID right now is hospital capacity and people dying. It's not if vaccinated people get it. Yeah. It's when unvaccinated people get it and you and you fill the hospitals with them. So if the unvaccinated are willing to sign a waiver saying I will not seek hospitalization <laughs> <laughs> and I will die at home, I'm okay with that. So Lene. <laughs> This is hard, right? Communicating about public health is always, has always been hard no matter what, but it's, it's like 10 times harder when we're on the edge of brand new science about a brand new virus uh, that we're still struggling to reckon with. One example of why this is hard, by the way, just as a side note for our listeners, you know, this news, uh, the, 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 the detection of this new variant came out of South Africa. Um, and a lot of people think that that means that this originated in South Africa. But what's actually happening is that South Africa just has a much more robust surveillance and detection infrastructure around viruses than anywhere else in the world. And their scientists are finding these things faster. And, they're, and, and, then, and then the WHO says, yes, here's the new science, thanks to South Africa. But everybody else reads the headlines and thinks, oh, we have a new virus and South Africa is responsible. And that's just not the case. So that's just that's just one small example of why this is so hard to communicate about. And I, and I wonder how you think this should play out. What should what should the Biden administration do? Do differently? Uh, what what are some real tangible changes in the way the government and all of its various you know components communicate about uh, uh, about the science as it emerges? And condition people to follow the science and follow new guidance as opposed to uh, sort of re- relying on uh, existing rituals like uh, mask wearing, which, you know, like, as, as we've talked about before, we, we made really good social, new social norms around wearing masks at one point in time because it was all we knew how to do. But we didn't build those social norms around following the science and, and, the, and the emerging guidance. And so when it came time to change directions, change those rituals, there was a lot of resistance to that. Yeah, I mean, I think to to start, this was a hard job, right? Because A, because it's a global pandemic that we don't know uh, enough about. And B, because Donald Trump so politicized every one of these decisions that then, you know, we've talked about this on previous episodes, the Biden administration went in the opposite direction and was like, oh, no, 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 we're going to let the scientists do it. We're not even going to talk to the scientists. We don't, we don't talk to the CDC. We're just go ask the CDC because they were so concerned about kind of overcorrecting um, the, you know, the craziness of Trump. I get it. But when it seems like the people who are supposed to be running the country are not even talking to the scientists because they're saying, go ask them, I'm not sure, that doesn't breed a lot of confidence. And, you know, to to make matters worse, to your point about South Africa, um, you know, the, <laughs> the administration did a travel ban 
What what message does that send? I know. The, that sends a very clear message that South Africa is responsible for this. Yeah. It's like, and we don't we want get, your cooties, South Africa. Right. right? <laughs> but, and first of all, do, do we not think that if that was a European country, we would have behaved very differently? Mm-hmm. Like, did you see the countries on that list and think about the people who live in those countries? Like, if the list had been Germany, the UK, and France... I mean, we're already making France mad, but like we wouldn't have done it if it were white people in that country. We just wouldn't have. And so I think like, it's not just that people got the wrong message. The administration actively sent the wrong message that, you know, that, that just builds on, um, kind of xenophobia and racism that like this, this country or this set of countries is dirty and sending us their dirty people and, so I I think I think that was a huge misstep. Yeah, honestly, it's not and then quite, all of a sudden, not quite this Wuhan week, virus, but you know, it's but, it sends a similar really message. Close. Yeah, really close. Yeah. And you think about like, oh, and now it's like, oh, it actually, probably came from Europe. You're like, oh, thanks. Oh. Okay. Well, actually, we know that it did. We, we know that did, on yeah. November nineteenth, yeah. we now know that the there was in the Netherlands. That's where there were two cases going back, but they just mm-hmm. again they don't have South Africa's response and and delivery of information. So they found out after it was blamed on South Africa that it was really, now it could have, you know, started in, in, in the Netherlands. It could have started in South Africa, but South Africa is the nation that's getting punished. And I want to push back just a little bit, um, Lene, on what you said about the Biden administration. I agree with you a hundred percent that going into this after Biden took the oath of office, he was dedicated to keeping it, follow the science, follow the science. But then he didn't. And there were two cases that really stand out tremendously. One was the booster. They tried to get ahead of the CDC on when the booster should come out. And I mean, there were, I I can name a few others, but that to me is the most recent and most of concern is that they w- they did do it and it did look a little political and that the messaging coming out of the administration, there's a few times where they just did it to look like he was on top of it. I don't, not for political reasons, but I think for public perception reasons that mm-hmm. the administration, we've got this, we've got this. And that they have to go back, especially now, to the, follow the science, but only the science. And just say, this is how many test kits we've got out. This is how many cases we have. This is who we're sending where. This is whatever recommendations they want to make. But they've got to go back to just the facts, like now. But they should also do it regularly. It doesn't mean that you can't have a press availability, maybe not with the president every day, but with someone from the CDC offering that information so the public does feel aware. And going back to Susan's point about testing, I've talked to friends who have been traveling um, internationally over different periods of time over the last year. And a lot of other countries, tests are like a dollar, right? And and my understanding, and I'm you know not an expert on this, but my understanding is the reason they're more expensive in the US is that we we were not focused in our approval process on the tests. We were focused on lots of other things. Now, those other things are great too. I'm very happy to be boosted with my vaccine. There's, you know, there's a, a new pill that might make things um, slightly easier to treat. But, but we need tests and we messed that up early on. And I actually have no idea who whose fault it was that that got messed up. But we have to turn that around because if, to your point about masks, Ron, if there was a um, social norm that you just get tested, then we'd be in a really different position. But I, for one, have taken maybe four COVID tests in my life and um, you know, and two of them were because I needed to get back into the country. Um, they were because I was traveling and one was because I was going to see relatives. And, but this has been going on for two years. I should have taken hundreds by this point. And, it, and if I lived elsewhere, I would have. Yeah. I don't know whose fault it is about the tests either, but it feels like we should blame Javanka. I know that's probably not fair, but <laughs> I just, I just feel like we should blame them for something like that. Or, or yeah. Texas. We could just go with Texas. But there is one scary thing, and this is why information is key, is that there are talks that the current tests 
do not necessarily track variants the same way because mm. they're using the older technology. Uh, mm. And I think it's important for if we're sending out tests today to say that, inform mm-hmm. the public that they need to, you know, if you get a home test and it comes up, you know, negative, I mean, positive, go get a PCR test as well. If you're sick, get one anyway. Don't take the regular home test. Go in and get, you know, I call it the brain tickler test because it goes all the way up there. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but like, we have to be honest with where we are and what we know. Mm. And that's what's concerning me the most about this new variant is that there are a lot of things we don't know and people acting like we've got the answers. Yeah. Well, and I yeah. think we're just really bad at uncertainty and ambiguity in general we in are. public we communication, hate that. right? Human beings hate that. They hate it in general, and we're very bad at it in communicating around news and information. I'm just thinking, you know, this this comparison is um, by no means as life and death as COVID, but it's the same same phenomenon we have with polls, right? We talk about polls, totally. and we and instead of saying, oh, well, the margin of error is this, and so that means there's a you know there's a percentage chance that it might be. Uh, five points off in both directions. So mm-hmm. when we say this person's eight points ahead, that's not really what that means. Instead, we're like, this person's eight points ahead and they're going to win. And you're like, wait, that's not actually what that's this That's not says. actually what this so, yeah. and, <laughs> and totally that, right. And that's a silly example, <laughs> right? Yeah. But But it's true. We don't like to say the percent chance that I'm right is 60%. Because we think people won't listen to us then. But then when it turns out you're wrong and you've said the percent chance that I'm right is 100%, then that really undermines confidence in the next time you say something. Yeah. By the way, I don't think that's a silly example at all because you hear eight points, you hear 10 points, people stay home and don't vote. That's, that's, right. that's democracy. Yeah, that's that is right. actually influencing. So yeah. I think it's a great example and not a little one. It's also, Susan, I can't help but think about this, uh, this sort of, hmm, how do I put it? It, there's a, there's a big difference in the customary approach to information when we're talking about things we don't know in, in, in private settings, let's say in corporate settings, right? It used to be the case that it was very, um, unacceptable taboo. It made you look dumb. If you said, I don't know in public to a question or even in a boardroom to a question, right? If you don't know the answer, but now that's, that culture is changing. The culture in the workplace is changing and it's becoming respectable to say, I don't know the answer to this, but I'm going to see what I can do to find out. Right. Mm-hmm. When it comes to public communication, I think, I mean, I think that's very true, when, but when it comes to public communication, that's not the advice that you would give a politician at a podium. Right. No, but I, I think it's what you're there's a difference in your, if you're in a boardroom and you're asked a question that you should know the answer and you don't know. Okay, fair. If, if the answer is knowable, right? Or Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm just saying, like, can I say what's going to happen to my quarterly, re- you know, quarterly report five quarters from now? No way. Especially if I have a business that relies on supply chain issues. People make That's it up all okay. the time. But you better say, well, you, there are trends and you kind of explain it. When it comes to public health, though, that's different than any other type of communication from government mm-hmm. because that's lives on the that's life that's people living and dying and we have to be more precise where we can and say why we don't know certain things we don't know things because it, it takes 2 to 4 weeks for the virus, the variant, to be tracked and see how it responds to the vaccines, the various vaccines. And then we can decide if another booster is required or if there's enough protection. To me, that is offering the information that you know at the time. And that is what I think government has to provide. They should also provide a lot of other data just so the people feel like nothing's being hidden. I mean, I, we talked about Andrew Cuomo earlier and what happened with his brother, but when those, those uh, briefings were going on, it was the only place the country could go to get any data and watch like what people were doing, what it meant to close the city down, what it meant to, to um, 
to have public transportation, what was needed, what it, all of these things, that's where people went. And it, and it was in New York, so it wasn't one size fits all around the nation, but that's how starved people were for information. I rather people have too much information that maybe they don't pay attention to some of it, but our elected officials and our government officials say where we are. The problem is, frankly, on the right, they are the, the, the wackadoos are saying nonsense. I mean, Ron Johnson, I, I mean, it, it's insane. I used to say someone dropped him on his head. I'm just wondering <laughs> if there's like rocks in his head. Like, was it something like that came at birth? Because you cannot explain the danger and stupidity coming out of his mouth. Oh, well, we just need more treatments. Really? No, we need more vaccinations. You've got to trust what's happening. You know, there's herd immunity is fine, but only when it is in when it comes with full vaccination. And because there are, in fact, people who cannot get vaccinated. Those, you know, it, it just kills me to listen to some of these people. But we have if you want to look responsible give people information. And when you don't know it, explain why mm-hmm. this, that's what's so great about science. Yeah. I can tell you why I don't have this data right now, because it requires uh, the following three things to happen. Instead of just saying, Oh, we can't know that we won't know for several weeks. Just tell us why. Yeah. And but then sci- you're okay with that. But scientists aren't the best communicators by like by nature, right? Which is why we need government to be good communicators about this. Right. But sometimes they are because the dryness of the message, you know, we don't need other words to, to, you know, it's a very difficult time. No, it's, this is the time where we have to put it, you know, and, and do this testing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm okay with people just giving the facts in a very dry, boring way. If Jen Psaki wants to brief from the podium, she's been very good when it comes to giving out information, but she needs to give it all out again to the point where you're like, oh, so we should know in two to four weeks what the vaccination's response is. That's good, right? Like, I may not like it, but that's good. At least we know. At least we know. Okay, there is some new hope, by the way, around COVID, which, you know, we should we should end this segment on a positive note. FDA advisors, which you mentioned, by the way, Lene, uh, uh, recommended authorizing the first antiviral pill to treat COVID. Uh, it's a five-day regimen that can be taken at home within five days of the onset of COVID symptoms. If it receives final approval, it could have an immediate impact on the pandemic. Um, it's not quite as effective as the monoclonal antibody treatment, but it is much easier to administer. Um, experts believe it could provide an additional tool to reduce the strain on hospitals, right? Which we all remember uh, flatten the curve and and the consequences of not doing that. So how do you think lessening the likelihood that hospitals will be overrun uh, will will shape public opinion about COVID, Lene? I mean, I have to start with uh, the fact that somebody told me about this pill, um, you know, two weeks ago or something. And it was um, when I was on vacation and it was a gentleman who I was very much trying not to talk about politics with because I could tell that anything I said, I'm sitting by the pool and I'm like, I, I need to talk about the wild horses that are running around or the ocean or something very benign because this gentleman is not going to be on the same page as me on anything. And he just keeps digging and digging. And um, my girlfriend said something about um, vaccines. And I look at her like, please, no, we're not talking about vaccines with this dude. It's <laughs> <laughs> not the right thing to do. And she, it was very benign. She like was just, you know, oh, now our kids can get vaccinated. And then um, he goes, well, you know, they have this pill now. And so we don't have to trust those drug makers anymore because we have this pill and it's made of ivermectin. And I was like, wait, what? What? Wait, what? So I immediately, to Susan's point about Google, go to Google to figure out, like, is this pill made of ivermectin? Like, is that, was there something real about the crazy horse pills? And the thing that came up, there were lots of things that came up. (laughs) But the thing that came up that I read was from the Associated Press, like, fact checker. And it literally said, False. <laughs> Public health experts say the only the only thing that is similar between ivermectin and this pill is that they are both a pill. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> so um, if that gives you any indication, I think the people <sighs> that were already on the ivermectin train um, are on that train and they're not going to listen to anything. Um, maybe they'll take this pill because they do think it's made of ivermectin. I don't know. But um, but I think, you know, there's there's a big polarization in how people are thinking about this right now. Yeah. And so the people that uh, are already vaxxed and boosted and don't need the pill are, you know, really excited about the pill. And the people who were already taking the horse thing are like, oh, this is the same thing I've already been taking. Oh, so why goodness. don't I take horse to warmer? Okay. So the pill is not going to solve our <laughs> misinformation problems, unfortunately. Correct. There have been a couple of news stories over the last few weeks about how Donald Trump and his allies have been working to reshape election boards and place supporters in key election posts around the country. You both know I'm following this very closely. Um, In Michigan, local GOP leaders are trying to reshape election canvassing boards by appointing members who supported Trump's big lie that the 2020 election was stolen. In two Pennsylvania communities, candidates who supported the election fraud allegations won races this month to become local voting judges and inspectors. Supporters of the big lie in Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Nevada are running for secretaries of state, the officer who oversees elections in most states. The Washington Post interviewed the Republican candidates in Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Nevada, not a single candidate on their campaign was willing to say Biden won the 2020 election. Many of them advocated for nearly endless audits of election results. A candidate in Arizona, also a Republican state lawmaker, has introduced a bill that would allow the state legislature to reject uh, who the Secretary of State certifies. The uh, a candidate in Nevada, Jim Marchant, said he would support allowing state legislatures to override the Secretary of State's certification. So um, this is bad. This is really bad. And I think it's a hell of a lot worse than, uh, than access to the ballot box, frankly, which is a problem that, uh, that gets a lot of attention because it's really sexy and it's really easy to imagine, right? It conjures up a lot of emotions. But this is the thing that is, I think, the, the, the flashing red light on the control board that we need to pay a lot more attention to. So, Lene, we've spent a lot of time uh, talking about the phone call between uh, Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and how Raffensperger really stood between Trump and stealing the election in Georgia, uh, which would have been sort of extremely consequential. If these candidates get elected as Secretaries of State, how... Is that going to erode trust in elections across the political spectrum? To say nothing of Republicans actually succeeding in overriding an election, regardless of, of you know at what level that happens, because I think that's I think frankly it's only a matter of time before that happens. Um, I know that's really dystopian, but I want to think about the the even bigger implications of overall trust in elections by both sides. Yeah, I mean, I think that the threat level is extremely high on this, and it goes beyond even the positions that you've talked about. So um, I'll give you a couple examples, because my um, stellar politics team at Third Way just put together a list of all of the people that um, could change election results <laughs> in the swing states in um, in 2024. And a lot of them are up for election in 2022. For example, the Florida Duval County Supervisor of Elections. That seems important. For example, all the county commissioners that decide um, to certify the elections in Nevada and Georgia. That seems important. The Attorney General in Arizona. The Secretary of State in Nebraska, which you might not ever think matters, but it does because Nebraska is the only weird place that has its electoral votes go by congressional district. So often a Democrat will win one electoral vote from Nebraska, even though the overall vote in in the state is crazy Republican. So, but this is a, a systemic problem that we've seen um, kind of asymmetrically throughout time. Republicans are much better at um, caring about and cluing into local elections. And Democrats aren't. 
And that has huge implications now for whether we're going to count votes. You know, it used to be huge implications for things like, can we, you know, provide abortion access in this state? Or um, are we going to protect LGBT people in this state? Well, now it matters, like, are we even going to count the votes that people <laughs> like um, cast? And I think that's really scary. And I think, you know, the only um, saving grace that I have right now is that Donald Trump is not that strategic. And so he's endorsing people, but he's endorsing a bunch of random people just because they say nice things about him. He's endorsing Senate candidates that are going to make it much easier for us to hold the Senate. And then he's endorsing some people in these races. So he's kind of like hurting his cause and helping at the same time and then doing a bunch of stuff that's just random. But but that is not true of the right wing as a whole. And they are strategic. They do know how to do this. And that is what scares me the most. Yep. Susan, I know you also spend a lot of time thinking about this. It looks like Secretary of State races are going to get a lot of attention the next few election cycles. But how do we get people to pay attention to and invest in races like the Duval County Supervisor of Elections? And Lene, I want to come back after Susan. I want to come back to how do we get Democrats to care about local stuff? Because like, uh, some tips would be great. But... Susan, what do you think? Well, the legislation that we're talking about and the changes to the responsibilities of certain legislators uh, on the statewide level, this is all about voter nullification. Mm-hmm. Yes. Simple. Mm-hmm. This is trying to, and that is something that may perk up some ears along the way. Like, it's also dangerous because if you think you can't trust the system, do you come out to vote? Now, some argue Donald mm-hmm. Trump's message in January in Georgia of you can, it's a rigged system led to Republicans not showing up, not voting, and leading to two Democratic wins. The Republican Party is, especially within the state constructs of them, the state party, the local chapters, are so beyond Donald Trump now that it doesn't matter who Donald Trump endorses. They are moving with this idea. They are going on with it. Why? Because Donald Trump, and I know I've said this a million times on this show, when he was elected, he got every state Republican state committee chairman on the phone and had them start building out their state committees. State committees are the people who nominate. They are the leaders within their local parties. They are county officials. These are the people, and that was their focus. They have now an army of people on the ground to just move this agenda forward. I have said a million times, Democrats need to wake up to this. Republicans, I started in local politics. I can't tell you how many of the local people I started out with 30 years ago have become members of Congress, who have had statewide positions uh, appointed. Uh, It It is the path to governance at the state level. And if you need further proof of that and and why you can't just look at Roe v. Wade, but you have to look at the Mississippi legislature, the case that went before the Supreme Court this week was a law drafted by the Mississippi legislature intended for the Supreme Court. It wasn't the Texas law. This law was literally the, the people who wrote it said, I want the Supreme Court to come down on Roe v. Wade, or at least chip away at it. You can't do it backwards. You can't rely on it to go the other way. That's why these state legislatures, even in places where you can prevent a supermajority, can make a difference. So it doesn't mean that Democrats have to win state houses. They just have to start finding a few voices within them. Mm-hmm. And how do you make a local county in Pennsylvania or Florida, a county clerk race exciting? You bring in people who know how to do this. Like they know there, there's so many operations that for on um, ballot initiatives and, and is, you know issues that we all do. They, people do this all the time. It's amazing how you can, I, I've done polling like of 132 people, literally, because that's the, like the size of the town. You call them every night for like two months, practically, to get them all in. But you need to know what they think. It takes forever. You go door to door if you have to. Democrats know how to do that on the, on, on the issue level. 
They now have to bring it to the electoral issue. And I think, or level, I should say, I think that's the way you do it. But, you know, the important thing that you start off with the segment, Ron, is you said people are elected. So you can't blame the Republican Party for getting their people elected. You ju- you could say they're bad people, but you got to give but a choice. But they're, but they're playing <laughs> the game. Yeah. So, Lene, this comes down to how do we get Democrats to do this, to focus on this? And I want to I want to lay a proposition on the table, which I think I have submitted to you before, but in the context of a different conversation, I think it was about um, judges. And 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 that basically the the lack of focus to judicial nominations and and vacancies at the lower level on the Democratic side, and the proposition is basically Democrats don't focus on the hyper local level as much as the state and local level on in, in, in any branch really because of uh, what what I think is a uh, is a sort of macro ideological preference for centralized and higher level authoritative solutions. Um, and, 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 you know, there are obviously exceptions to that, but I wonder if at the, you know, at at the democratic organizing, you know, conventions, like is, is a reason that, that, that there isn't very much energy paid to the, to the significance of, state and local infrastructure, and by infrastructure, I mean actually getting people elected because of essentially a resentment toward the federalist system that we have and a wish that we had something different. I mean, I think that's certainly part of it. The idea that we can just go up and fix things, um, you know, in Washington and then tell the states what to do is, you know, one of our favorite things to do. <laughs> You're going to see that in a whole range of issues. So um, it seems like a shortcut. Like, why should you spend all this money electing all these state legislators if you can just elect a few members of Congress and then they will pass a law that says the state legislators don't matter on X issue? Um, So I I do think that's part of it. I also think, though, that um, what Susan said is really true. We organize based on issues Mm. on the left. And so even when you think about, say, who's on the ground turning out voters um, on the left, it's people like the unions. It's people like Planned Parenthood. It's people like the Sierra Club. And so because we're that's like a fractured thing. Those those folks aren't all committed to what's best for the Democratic Party, particularly in like the su- supervisor of elections races, because Planned Parenthood doesn't care about that. I mean, maybe they should now, which, but it's it's way upstream or downstream or whatever part of the stream from them. So it's it's not you know part of the debate. But and and what we did, what we did in a very um, clear way during the Obama campaign was decide that we were going to run based on national figures who are popular, who are going to build their own databases, who are going to build their own machine rather than invest in state parties. And state parties are the ones whose job it is to say, oh shit, that county commissioner (laughs) is a problem. But like, that's not Barack Obama's job. He's gone. He's doing, he's doing a podcast now. Mm -hmm. He's like got some other stuff to do. So the fact that we've, um, you know, kind of privatized our infrastructure within the Democratic Party and then um, and then lent it out or um, or, uh, you know, created mercenaries in these different issue groups like that's all fine and good. But that you're energized about reproductive rights or climate or whatever. But nobody's looking at the whole. And that, I think, is is really worrisome. I think that's a really good point. And I'm going to talk to somebody later today about looking at the whole and the balance of power. Okay, now that we are up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what you're watching. Susan, what do you have for us? Well, I'm watching the January uh, 6th committee and not who they are interviewing big shiny names like the Mark Meadows debate or the Jeffrey Clark stuff. Like that's all good, like whatever they will or they won't. I think that they are getting down to the level and we know that they've already interviewed 150 people so far, that these are the people on the ground that have the emails that took the torn up piece of paper that the president put in the garbage and knew they had to keep it for records and made a copy. I think that we're at the level where 
they are going to, I think people are going to find out who some of those are and it's going to scare the living bejesus mm-hmm. out of people because uh, who are about to testify because they're going to have to do it under oath. I think that the groundwork that we haven't heard that the, been laid by the committee is tremendous. Mm-hmm. And not to get caught up with who's testifying, who's taking the fifth at the, the upper levels. I think there's enough paper on the ground that it's really changing things and people are starting to find out who those people are mm-hmm. and we'll hear a lot more about them in the next week or two. Good story. Lene, what do you got? Uh, mine's a 2011 flashback that I wished I never had to talk about again. Um, we did this product uh, back in 2011 that was called Dominoes of Default. And it was looking at all of the different ways that an individual American Ooh. person is going to be hurt by uh, defaulting on our debt. Well, this week, our team is updating those numbers because... <laughs> <laughs> We have an updated debt ceiling limit, and it is December 15th. We are two weeks away from defaulting on our debt, which would crash our economy um, and undermine the all economy. the progress. The world economy and undermine all the progress, not to mention raise individual consumers' interest rates, do all kinds of crazy things um, that would really send our economy into a a tailspin and undo all the progress that we've made this far. Um, And we do not have a plan to fix it. And here's why. It used to be that at least when Republicans would object to raising the debt ceiling, because again, this is debt we have already charged. This is our credit card that we already ran up a bill on, including with the Trump tax cuts. And now we're saying, oh, we don't want to pay it. This is not new spending. So it used to be that the parties would vote together to say, let's raise our credit card limit because we already spent that money. Well, that's not happening anymore. But then in 2011, what the Republicans did was say, hey, I don't want to pay this debt that I've already charged um, unless you give me some other stuff. So that's how we got sequestration and these like budget cuts and other things because they used it as a bargaining chip. Now they're just saying, F off. I don't care. Uh-uh. I'm, it's not my problem. You guys take care of it. And because Democrats have used the reconciliation process on other things, they're saying, okay, you guys just do it then. You do it. I don't need to be involved. And there's a couple problems with that. One is substantive, which is the reconciliation process is difficult. And as we can see from Build Back Better, very long. And we don't have time. We don't have time to do it by reconciliation. The second is that if you do it by reconciliation, you can't give a new date for the debt to go to. You can't say, well, Mm. you can continue paying our bills until X date. You have to say an amount of money. Mm -hmm. So then you're asking all these frontline Democrats to say, I'm going to raise uh, the debt ceiling by one quadrillion dollars. Mm-hmm. And you know that that's why Mitch McConnell's doing this. Cause then that's going directly in his ads. Mm-hmm. So we are in a pickle and I am very worried about what's going to happen in the next two weeks and hoping that Congress and, and Chuck Schumer pull a rabbit out of their hat because this is going to be dicey. That's going to be a really good segue to our plus segment. Uh, but before we go to that, I have a I have a shot chaser look ahead for you both today. Um, I've been thinking a lot about money lately, just the whole concept of money, right? And as you both know, I'm closely following the regulatory developments in uh, the crypto world, including uh, today the SEC's conference on digital assets. Um, that was just this morning that I was listening into, and one of the things that SEC Chairman Gary Gensler noted in his remarks was that these innovations are forcing everyone to revisit some really core first principles of our social contract, like what is money? How should we think about the manipulability of ledgers, which is how we keep track of who owes who what? Now, the SEC's general posture toward uh, digital assets is that they consider you know, many, if not most of them, to be unregulated securities, uh, putting them outside of compliance with, with SEC regulations. But once again, Bitcoin sits uniquely apart from that tangled mess because, uh, partly because the government has issued clear guidance that it is not a security, it is a commodity, as defined by the, by the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, CFTC. And 
most interestingly, it stands uniquely positioned to address the very questions that Gensler was raising in his remarks this morning. Uh, What is money and what does it mean to store value? And should anyone be able to manipulate the way we keep track of that? So that's the shot. The chaser is uh, something you both probably heard uh, this week. Jack Dorsey resigned as CEO of Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, He then immediately announced that Square was changing its corporate name to Block, which houses Square now, which is the the the, the retail uh, end of of their offering, Cash App, which we which I use a lot, uh, Title, uh, and a subsidiary of Square that had previously been called Square Crypto, which is, he has now renamed Spiral. Uh, mm. Removing crypto from the from the name, uh, and it is now focused on making quote making Bitcoin the planet's preferred currency. Mm. Now, wow. now, now, <laughs> gets even better. Okay, one of the really big challenges to regulators is the anonymous, although perfectly transparent, nature of transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, because it's because we have these AML uh, anti money laundering and KYC know your customer uh, laws that banks have to follow to make sure that bad people aren't doing bad things with money. So uh, uh, this holding company Block also houses one other very interesting project called TBDEX, which not coincidentally just released its first white paper within the last couple of weeks. Now. This is really interesting. Basically, Jack is focused on building digital infrastructure that will allow people to identify themselves without the use of an intermediary, which is precisely what the government's hangup is with, uh, with the anonymous nature of, of cryptocurrencies, with Bitcoin in particular. So... It's fascinating. This is a really big development. And um, thank you for indulging me. Wait, does this mean that we all are going to like identify ourselves in the metaverse? And, <laughs> no, this is not. The metaverse does not exist. And then I get to exist. have like a really cool icon <laughs> that is like I can put cool clothes on her and like an awesome haircut. You can you can still do that. Yeah, you can. Okay, you can still. That's, that's what I'm getting from that. Okay. Um, before I let you go, where can everybody find you on the internet, Lene? I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter. And Susan? I'm at Del Percio S on Twitter. And I'm at Ron Seslo on Twitter. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.